Welcome to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. My name is Ginger Fenton, and I'm an educator based in Mercer County, Pennsylvania. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Kevin Harbertine to our podcast today. Dr. Harbertine is a professor of nutritional physiology in the Department of Animal Science at Penn State University. He's doing some exciting research that may be of interest to our listeners. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Harbertine. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your research interests? So so I'm actually Pennsylvania native, so I grew up on a small dairy farm in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, Did my undergraduate at Penn State and then graduate work at Michigan State and Cornell, mostly focused around fat supplements and and milk fat depression. And that's what I've been focusing my research program on at Penn State uh, for almost past 14 years. We work both on nutrition and on lactation. And basically the big picture is that we'd like to understand all the different factors that are contributing to how much milk fat a cow is making. So then we can get that formula right to really get maximal milk fat yield. Can you explain the value of why we're feeding fat to cows? Yeah. So it's interesting when you look at our diets, they're actually pretty low in fat, especially to our diet as humans, right? So our our diets, depending on on where you fall on your view of uh, fat being healthy or unhealthy, you may be eating 15 to 40% fat in, in your diet. In a cow's diet, we're really talking about two to about five and a half, six percent in most of our our commercial diets. So it's a rather low level, but it's really important because fat is much more energy dense than carbohydrate and protein. So it's a good way for us to to get cows extra energy and high producing cows need energy. But the other part of it is that we're trying to support milk production and specifically milk fat. And a little bit over half of the fat that the cow makes actually comes from those fatty acids that she's absorbed from her diet. So we need to be providing uh, enough fat and also the right fatty acids. So we, for many years, understood that we have to feed individual amino acids at the right amounts. And we're more and more learning that it's not just the amount of fat the cow's eating, but that different fatty acids are doing different things. So you may hear people thinking about the amount of steric or palmitic or oleic acid that they're feeding that cow. So we're getting down to those more detailed levels. I have read in the press recently that you were the recipient of two USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture grants. Can you tell us about these projects and what the research questions are that inspired each of them? So the first one is focused on figuring out if there's a, an exact requirement or if we can predict a requirement for the amount of fat that we, sh- we should be feeding cows to optimize milk fat production. And that that might sound like a, a really simple question and in a way it is, but it, it, it has not been answered yet. And that's because it's probably not, not a single answer. So we're doing a series of experiments where we're trying to titrate dietary fat levels and then look at how that cow uses that dietary fat. And it's based on that uh, when you feed a low-fat diet, we have what we call a a very high transfer efficiency of fatty acids from the diet to milk. And actually, in a lot of cases, cows are putting more um, 
what we call preformed fatty acids, the 18 carbon fatty acids into milk, then she's actually eating. So obviously they can't just appear out of thin air. They have to, to come from somewhere. So what we think is that the, the fat cells in the cow are actually making fat and exporting it to the mammary gland when we're feeding very low fat diets. So we're trying to characterize that adjustment that's occurring. Uh, so basically when we're feeding a low fat diet, we think that other organs in the body are trying to make up for that dietary fat deficiency. Now that may be okay, but it also may be that if we fed a little bit more fat, that should be more efficient and not have to do all of that extra work to support milk production. So kind of the applied part of that is that, number one, we, we want to maximize milk fat yield because a lot of the value of milk is in the fat. But the other part is that fat is very expensive, especially in recent years. The price of fat has gone up with both the increased freight, ocean freight costs uh, for our imported fats, but then there's also a lot of competition that there's in additional incentives for renewable fuels in towel and a lot of the byproduct oils that we had been feeding animals are now being used for renewable fuels. So the price of that fat's gone up. So we, we want to get as much fat as we can with feeding uh, as little expensive fat as we can. So that that's kind of kind of the goal in the project is to be able to to define that more precisely. Then the second project is kind of inspired off of the Buttergate issue that came up in Canada a couple of years ago. Uh, so to kind of give the brief view of that, there's a cookbook author that had tweeted one day that they thought that their butter was harder at room temperature. And this sort of went viral that there's a lot of people jumping in agreeing and it evolved to thinking that maybe it was a palmitic acid supplement that farmers are feeding increasingly over the last decade and that maybe that's the cause of the change in in melting temperature uh, so palmitic acid specifically has a bigger impact of milk fat yield than than other fat supplements so it has been increasingly used the other part that became part of that social media storm is that palm plantations don't have the, the best environmental track record. Um, of course, what we're feeding dairy cows is not palm oil itself, but a byproduct of palm oil processing. So, so that became a, a very controversial topic in Canada. So at the time, there was some data out there. I, it was not well known. So we had to get through that first part of it to to actually have people realize there was a little bit of data out there. But now our goal in that grant is to actually characterize what is the effect of diet and dietary fats on butter melting properties. Can you give us the basics of how you're seeking to answer those questions then through your research? So let's, let's start with the, the butter questions first. As any good nutrition researcher, we don't throw any samples out until our freezers are entirely packed. Uh, so we we actually have stored milk fat samples from almost all of our experiments that we've conducted over the past 12 years. Our experiments are focused on changing milk fatty acid profile and milk fat yield. So what we're doing is we're we're raiding our freezers and pulling those samples out and we're doing some melting temperature characterization on those, those samples. And then we're going to move from there to doing some more complicated 
characterization of the melting properties and physical characteristics. And then we'll actually wrap up doing an, a, a cow experiment, getting milk and making butter from that to actually not just have the physical characterization, but get some real properties of what the consumer would be experiencing in, in the butter side. Um, so that's a collaborative project back with food science. So they're helping us both with the characterization side and the, the butter making and testing there. And then on, on our other experiment, we're, we're taking a number of different approaches to be able to actually track fatty acids from the diet into milk. So we're using some new techniques that allow us to feed diets with fats from different sources and then actually be able to, to track that fatty acid into milk. And then we're also going to be doing some biopsy experiments where we actually take tissue samples of fat cells and look at what's happening in those fat cells when we feed high and low fat diet. So part of that experiment is basic, has a basic goal of understanding what's happening in the regulation in those other tissues. In listening to your description about the melting temperature characterization, I wondered, did they notice any difference in any other food matrices besides butter? Because I'm thinking about, you know, anything that yeah. um, chocolate or something else that may... May affect yeah, that. that's a that's a great question, and so I I've learned quite a bit in this area, but I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm not a food scientist or a dairy processor, but uh, the best description of this that I've ran into is that you kind of need to think of butter or or milk fat as a mixture of solid and liquid. So if you go down to the molecular level, the fat is in what we call a triglyceride. So if you think about having a glass full of marbles and each of those marbles is a different fat that the cow made, and there's probably maybe a couple hundred different types of marbles. And each of those marbles actually is a different melting temperature. So at any one temperature, some of the marbles are liquid and some are solid. Now, you, if you think of putting your butter in the, in the, the freezer or in the fridge, it, it, it's a solid, but it's very hard, right? You bring it out and you put it on the counter and it warms up. It's still officially a solid, but it's much softer. Well, what's happened is that some of those marbles have melted while others have not. And there's enough of them there still solid that it still is a block, but it's a very soft block. So what's interesting about this is that the physical properties, the softness is very dependent on the temperature, right? So if you put your butter in the fridge and keep your butter in the fridge, you're not going to notice a difference because at that temperature, all butter is very hard. Now, if you put it out on your counter and it comes to room temperature, it just happens that at room temperature, it's kind of a key area there that if you are feeding more palmitic acid, in that butter has enough palmitic acid, the melting temp will change pretty reasonably at room temperature. So that, that's why people are seeing it there. Now, my understanding is for something like cheese, it's not so much of an issue because the cheese on your pizza or a lot of the cheese that we cook with, we're eating warm, right? We've cooked it and we're eating it warm. So if you take butter from being at room temperature to a fry pan, it's all going to melt. So then it doesn't matter anymore because it's all melted. So, so that's where it's going to change the melting properties in all products. But the thing is, 
butter is the key one because we're we're dealing with it at room temperature ice cream is cold so it's it's all going to be hard you know the cheeses when we eat them warm they're all going to be be melted so so that's where it seems like the the largest impact is is on butter okay and i think we you you've touched on this already but my next question was if you could tell us more about palmitic acid supplements being included in a cow's diet and how that affects butter yeah, and, and just touch on that. So, so you know, we we in the U.S. have been feeding palmitic acid supplements, and 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 I think the producers in in the audience would would recognize that it's we're it's amazing to me how much we're advancing in our application of science on the farm. That that that's part of our normal nomenclature now. Talking about feeding in Canada, they are paid more for butterfat than what we have. So. I think they probably on average have had some higher levels of palmitic acid feeding them than what we've had in the US. But palmitic acid gets you the most consistent response in, in milk fat. So that, that's generally why it's fed. Just to go a, a little bit into the science, because I, I think this is a, a, an interesting part of why palmitic acid causes the problem. So when we feed fat supplements, most of them are going to give the cow either palmitic which is 16 carbon saturated fatty acid or steric, which is an 18 carbon saturated fatty acid. Steric and palmitic melting properties are, are very similar. Actually, steric would be a little bit worse than palmitic. But what's interesting is that the cow takes steric acid and puts a double bond in it. And, a, and over half of the steric acid that comes into the mammary gland gets a double bond and is made into oleic acid and that drastically changes the melting temperature. Palmitic acid, it is about 5%. So steric acid over 50%, palmitic only 5% gets that, that double bond inserted. So that's why when we when we feed steric acid, our normal fats are, are kind of calm, the older fashions fat supplements, they don't have as much or any impact on melting properties because the cow is kind of fixing that versus palmitic, that the enzyme doesn't work so well. So then you get the saturated fat into, into butter. The, the last thing I'll just want to put in there, it's not, this isn't a yes, no question, right? It's not that you can't feed any palmitic acid. It, it's a matter of, of degree. And that's part of what we're trying to work out with this grant is to say, you know, where, where are the inflection points? So is there a level that that if you go past that, you're going to get a noticeable difference in, in butter. And, and I think that's a key part that it has to be big enough that it actually can be noticed by the consumer. The other thing about this, I always like to mention that there is some upside of this, right? So I know we're in a commodity industry, we're always on this, okay, we, we can do this and it's going to cause us some time and money are we going to get paid for it, right? So I, I think where we could get down the road is maybe we would want to feed herds differently based on where the milk is going. So if it's going to an ice cream manufacturing plant, we don't need to worry about it. Cheese plant, maybe we don't need to worry about it. If it's going to the butter plant, maybe we should take some consideration. And the other side is, you know, we have a a, a lot of Irish butter being purchased in the US. And that's with the grazing cows, they have higher unsaturated fat and that butter has 
melting properties that some consumers prefer. So maybe it's an opportunity to make a niche product that could actually compete with, with Irish butter and create some additional demand. So I, I don't think it's something that every farm is going to have to be doing, but I would like to know more about it so that we can kind of do what we need to do in the right situation. That's definitely something to consider. I'm curious about where we're in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so where are where's palm oil sourced from? And is it all created equal? Are there any supply chain issues that have arisen or anything to be aware of with that? The palm fatty acid, there, there, there's some palmitic acid in just about every feed that we feed, right? Uh, the high concentrated palm products, so come from palm oil manufacturing, mostly in Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, so what, what we're getting is a, a byproduct from that. And the, the product that's normally being used is a 80% palmitic acid as a dry fat. There's also the, the calcium salt products. Calcium salt of palm fatty acids is another byproduct. Most of that is also coming from Malaysia and Indonesia. And there certainly were a lot of supply chain issues in a couple different forms. I don't know where that I think that was improving. I'm not sure exactly where it where it's at right now. As you've been working through these projects, have you encountered anything unexpected or that surprised you? Yeah, so we we haven't gotten very far into the experiments just yet. So we're we're kind of doing the first analysis. So right right now we haven't ran into any any big challenges, but with with any research experiment you usually do run into run into challenges along the way and quite often hopefully you answer a few questions, but you usually find a few more questions too that lead to the next projects. Absolutely. That's what keeps research going, asking more questions. For the dairy producers that are listening, I'm sure they're curious about how your research could affect their bottom line. Where do you see current and future opportunities for increasing components, especially milk fat? So like you mentioned, our goal is to kind of characterize all the different factors that go into how much milk fat a cow is making. One of the ones I'd, I'd want to point out, we did some characterizations of the seasonal patterns for milk fat and protein and milk yield. And, and I'm always, always telling people that, you know, our first thing is to set the goal for your farm. And uh, it's a almost a perfect repeating pattern that highest milk fat percents January 1, lowest is July 1. And that's about 0.25 units of, of milk fat. So, so I like to use as an example that you should be changing your goal across the year and making a, a, a very accurate and precise goal doing that, right? So there, there's some things like that. We've been looking in the genetic influences. There's a lot of variation between cows, not so much within a farm. And a lot of our ongoing work related to, to these projects are ideas to be able to come up with that ideal fat supplementation and in, in profile. Again, that's both you you can increase cash flow if you can get that right and get more milk fat yield and save on feed costs if you're not not having to overfeed. That was one of my follow-up questions. I was thinking about if a calculation of income over feed costs, if that analysis is part of your work or if that would be the next step. We don't usually do uh, the economic analysis for our, our experiments. Um, and part of that is when, when we publish, uh, that data stays in the literature over a long period of time. And you know, it, it would be 
it's a good example of if we had published a paper three years ago and used feed costs from then, uh, if you looked at that paper today, you, you have to redo all of your calculations, right? So what, what we usually try to do is provide all the information that someone would need to then be able to plug into their current feed costs. The other thing is not just by differences over time, but there's a lot of differences between regions that you know, I do a lot of speaking and get into discussions with nutritionists across the country. And you look at feed costs here versus in the Midwest versus in California or Florida, and it, it all changes. And I think even within Pennsylvania, depending where you're at and what mills you're able to work with and how their supply distribution works, just with freight differences, you can end up with pretty considerable differences in your cost. And that's partly, you know, in Pennsylvania, we do have a number of byproducts available that we can can make use of. So I, I think that is probably best done a little bit more on your individual situation rather than a global yes, no. I, I often joke, if you look at all the different ways people feed cows across the country, there's not one perfect diet, right? Uh, there's a lot of different ways. And, and luckily, the cow is pretty adaptable and can make things work with a, a lot of different types of diets. Oh, you made some great points there. In the context of your work and your research area, are there any other management practices to consider beyond changing a, a ration formulation that you'd like to talk about? A lot of our work's been around diet-induced milk fat depression and for a number of years, we we were doing quite a bit of work on daily patterns of intake. And that's kind of uh, still a, a pet area for me to talk about is that, you know, we, we feed TMRs and we kind of lull ourselves into this false idea that every bite is the same. Thus, the rumen is now a constant fermentation because every bite has the same amount of starch and fiber in it. The problem is that cows eat three or four times more during the day than they do at night, and, and they eat a lot of feed when they get fresh feed delivered. So those differences in the rate of intake cause some really big changes in the rumen, and that could really put you at risk for milk fat depression. So I, I really like talking to people about watching their cows and watching how they're eating and thinking about how they're feeding and how they're influencing that. And it can be a little bit of extra time changing your feeding times or changing the order of how you're doing things, but at least you're not buying a lot of expensive ingredients doing that. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in, on the farm to think about that. We don't want cows being super aggressive coming up to fresh feed delivery. We like to get those fresh feed deliveries early in the morning when cows are kind of still sleeping in, right? Get them up and eating. Noontime is a lower intake period of the day. That's a nice time for a second feed delivery. Cows want to eat in the afternoon and early evening. We don't really have to, to do a lot of, of extra to push them to do that. This is a little bit of a, a lighter question. Can you tell us what you enjoy most about being a researcher or why, why you've decided to do what you do? Yeah, I, I think there's two two different parts of that that I, I really enjoy. So so I, I actually had no plans to be a scientist. I was applied undergrad and planned to to go out and work directly in, in the industry. And but then got into grad school and really kind of fell in love with the process of finding a question that nobody has an answer to 
and then going and trying to find an answer to that. And, and that's both from digging through the literature and what other people have done, even in other species, and applying that back, and then going to do some experiments and trying to answer that question. So, so to me, that's really fun to, to have that unanswered question and go, go and try to find it. The other part is, you know, our, our research is all done by grad students. Now, as I'm getting a little bit older, I can call them younger. They're they're still figuring out how how they work and what gets them excited and how they how they get things done. Uh, and it's really fun to see grad students kind of grow and and really figure out figure out how to do things and and get excited about their research projects. So I really enjoy that that kind of mentoring part. And it's also then great to see those students go out and and work in industry and continue to develop and, and do some great things. Do you have any takeaway messages that you'd like to share with our listeners? A, a good takeaway would be just to appreciate that that on the milk fat side, there's a lot of different influences that, that are going into that. The good thing is we have characterized a lot of different parts of that, right? So there's not one solution, but we can we can get a lot of little things right and that can really, really help us out. Especially right now, milk fat is, is really valuable and, and can have a really big impact on that, that milk check. The other thing is that I, I think our nutritionists and on-farm consultants really have put a lot of time into both learning what we've done in the industry and then playing with it in the field and figuring out what works for them and their type of diets and the herds that they're they're working with. Uh, so I'd say it's not something that is easy to solve, but there's a lot of pieces to it that we can work on in improved production and improved profitability. Thank you very much for your time. I think this has been an extremely interesting conversation. I know for me, and I think our listeners will benefit from it as well. Don't forget to tune in for the next episode of Bovine Banter, when Dr. Adrian Berrigan will be speaking with Dr. Kathy Soder with the USDA Ag Research Service Pasture Systems and Watershed Management Laboratory that's housed at University Park. If you have any questions about today's episode, please email me at gdc3 at psu.edu.